Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Uh, let me get my microphone uh, where I want it to be. Um, how are you doing? Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Um, Sean and I are still in the process of moving. Things are about to get crazy. We've been uh, doing most of our packing at night, like after work, and so doing the kitchen and you guys, if you've been following me for a while, do you remember when I did the Marie Kondo, does this bring me joy kind of thing and put all of my clothes in the living room? Well, last night, Sean and I packed our, our closets. And I mean, I know how much I love dresses. And so I have a ton of dresses. So I was aware and I got rid of quite a few things. But I was surprised how much Sean had. And I was like, you need a Marie Kondo your life because holy shit, he just kept pulling out more and more pants. I was like, oh. How does one have so many pants? Anyway, we've lived in this apartment for 10 years, so I'm not surprised that we have accumulated some things, but it's just shocking. Have anybody's moved recently? Were you shocked? I'm shocked. Um, anyway, I hope you're doing well. I hope you've been doing some things to take care of yourself. We are not robots. I have to remind myself that. I'm kind of saying this so that I hear myself say it, but we aren't robots. We can't work 24-7. We have to take breaks. We have to do things to take care of ourselves because otherwise the world will just take, take, take. And if we give, 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 we've got nothing left. Um, I have 10 questions today. I'm excited to spend some time with you. You have wonderful questions as per usual. Um, and if some of you, I know some of you, you know, were like, you took more questions from this one than that one. And, and how come last week you didn't take these? I'm doing the best I can. I just please have some compassion and some patience with me. I'm recording like this week, I'm recording two podcasts so that I'm ahead of it so that when we're moving, you have podcasts, which I usually don't do. I like to kind of do them each week so that I don't know. I don't know why I like doing it. I just like to do it that way. So sue me. Um, but if you see that I just haven't picked questions from that one, it's, it's just because of that. It's because my life is kind of in flux here for the next few weeks. And I'm just trying to prepare ahead of time. So I'm not overwhelmed when it's happening. Um, cool. Cool. Okay, let's get into that first question. This question says, Hi, Katie, I'm kind of struggling to accept my sexuality. I know that I'm only attracted to women but I still have a hard time to allow myself to be okay with it. I struggle with social anxiety. Um, so I'm pretty sure I'll never find a relationship. Wow. That's, that's quite a jump there. A lot of judgment, especially, especially if I keep going on the way that I do. I am 28 and I've never been in a relationship. That's okay. 28 is not that old. I know you say there isn't an age limit, <laughs> but I feel like it's really difficult when I already struggle to talk to anyone. So how can I accept myself enough so I might even consider taking action and looking for a relationship when I'm convinced no one would even talk to me? Okay, so this is filled with a ton of judgments, hence the social anxiety. And the truth about this is if we take your sexuality out of it, right, we take uh, romantic relationships out of it. The real focus is that we need to figure out a way to better manage your social anxiety. And that would be what I would encourage you to, to talk with a therapist about. Social anxiety in general, I believe is born out of well, all anxiety is born out of a lack of confidence or, or self assurance or whatever you want to call it that kind of like deep down belief in ourselves that we're okay, and that we're good enough. And so we worry all the time about how other people are perceiving us or how we interact with other people. Um, and that is what our anxiety is built off of. And so I think that if you went into see a therapist and start talking about your anxiety symptoms, start working on them, start not only noticing your self-talk. I know you guys get sick of me talking about that, but it's very important. Pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. Can we make those things less judgmental? 
We don't have to necessarily make them positive, but can we bridge statement them? Can they be, I'm possibly not as horrible as I think I am, or I'm open to, because a lot of times with social anxiety, we have to say something like, I'm open to considering that someone might enjoy my company, right? That's really hard. It's, it's trying to get us to that place where we can just be open to relationships. I think so often as we get older, even especially in our 20s, because a lot of people are like, you know, figuring out who they are, starting to date people seriously, maybe consider marriage if that's what they want um, and all that jazz, we can feel behind if that's not us. When you are right, I do not believe there's an age limit, but it's give you, it's causing you distress. So let's work on it. Let's start noticing how we talk to ourselves. Let's work on like building mastery is what we call it in um, DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. It's called building mastery. You can look it up on in Google and you know figure it out. Um, read more about it if you want to know. But it's really about trying out things, new things and getting good at them or finding things that you're already kind of good at and mastering them, spending more time. Like if you kind of play the guitar and you have a few songs, can we get better at it? And can we learn a new song or something like that? Or um, if you're, like I said, if you really like to cook, I've, I've offered these options and videos before, but there can be different things that we're good at and we can put more effort into those things. We're all good at things. I know a lot of you will tell, will tell me, but I'm not good at anything. Lies. That is just judgment from your brain talking trash to you and that's bad self-talk. So instead, we have to think, is there something that I do that other people sometimes seem impressed by? Like for me, people are always impressed with my organizational skills. Now, would I say that's something that I'm good at back in the day? Probably not because I thought everybody was organized the way I was organized. But now that I realize it's one of my like special powers, then when people ask me like, what are things you're, you're really good at? I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm really good at organizing and like planning out days so I can accomplish the things I need to without feeling overwhelmed. Ta-da! And I work on it and I do it all the time. Um, so find some random things that you're good at and let's do that thing. So we feel good about ourselves. And all of that effort in the way that we talk to ourselves and the building mastery and then putting good out there, talking kindly to other people. I know that a lot of us are still at home because of lockdowns and just COVID fear and all sorts of shenanigans. It's okay to just do that online. Like I've talked about this all the time that when I'm having a shit day, I go into TikTok or Instagram and I just leave nice comments on my friends' posts because I love them anyways. And it helps for me. It feels good for me to potentially have the, I guess, to have the belief that I could improve someone else's day. And in doing so, I improve my day. And so try to do something like that or think of a way that you could, you know, put good out into the world. And then and finally, and the most difficult is once we've done that kind of work and we're talking about that stuff in therapy and working through it, then the final crux of this for social anxiety is to actually go out and be social. I know, I cringed too. But going out or meeting up with someone at the park or, you know, doing something, like if we're doing it on dating apps or whatever, finding someone like just trying it or messaging someone, right? That would be like a first step into, into socializing. Like let's take some of those first steps because what we have to do is to slowly expose ourselves to social situations and then use some of those tools, right? The thing that we're good at, we can talk more nicely to ourselves. Maybe we have some coping skills along the way that we pick up. We use those resources, we calm our system down, we expose ourselves to it again. And slowly but surely we prove to our brain that social situations and meeting people in romantic relationships aren't terrifying. They're not gonna end horribly. We're not gonna be completely, uh, 
make a fool of ourselves and not be able to leave and we're going to, you know, be super embarrassed. We, we, we prove that that stuff is not true. Um, and that's how we fight against it. And that's how we essentially beat and overcome our social anxiety. And of course, you're convinced that no one will talk to you because anxiety and our mental illnesses are always just talking shit to us in our heads. So pay attention to the conversation and let's make it a little bit more positive. Okay, let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hi, Katie, I find it super problematic when people use words from the mental health field for everyday things. <gasps> I can't think of a specific incident, but I mean things like, ah, when we said the coffee was empty, I was really, it really triggered me. Or, hey, there was no cup left when I arrived this morning, really traumatic, man. Or, man, I didn't roll a six again, really depressing, etc. I always wonder if I'm just overreacting. But on the other hand, it feels so invalidating to the struggles that I face on a daily basis living with mental disorders. And I kind of wish people would understand what impact those words have. I'm aware that language evolves and therefore terms find their way into everyday speech. But since it bothers me so much, I was wondering what your and our Kenyan community uh, thoughts are about this. Sending love from Germany. Okay, this is a great question. And the comments below this were also very good. So a couple of things. First of all, we're applicable, meaning when we're around people that we feel comfortable having difficult conversations with, like a close friend or colleague, someone we talk to and interact with on the regular that we feel comfortable being ourselves, you know, most of the time around, I think it's safe to to ask for this, okay? And the way that we could ask for this would be to say something to the effect of when they've said a term, like, yeah, that was really triggering. You could say, um, yeah, I, I, told, I totally get what you're saying, you know, but from my experience with PTSD, triggers are actually really, you know, uncomfortable and super serious. So I would just appreciate it if maybe we didn't use mental health terms. I know you may be thinking I'm being too sensitive, but, you know, could we just say something like that was upsetting or that bothered me, you know, because um, I find that language, you know, kind of hurtful. Okay, we can say that. If we are in a situation where these are just people out in the world who are going to say stuff like, uh, for instance, I've been out to many, many YouTube events where people are eating, having appetizers or having cocktails or whatever. And someone in the group will say, oh, no, no, thanks. I don't, you know, the appetizer tray will be passed around. Oh, no, 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 thanks. I don't want any. Um, and someone will say something to the effect of like, oh, are you on a diet? And someone will make a joke. Oh, no, she's just anorexic or he's just anorexic. And that stuff bothers me, right? But here's the thing. I could try to school them on this new ter this term and how hurtful that is and how invalidating that is. Or I can recognize that people use terms inappropriately all the time. And it's up to me to have my resilience up to a level with which I can just roll with it and forget about it and not, not be bothered by it. Now, I know some of you out there are screaming because you're like, but it's really upsetting. It's super invalidating. Yes, those are those things are all correct. However, as I've said in the uh, past time and time again, we cannot control other people. I can't force other people to not use terms inappropriately or say things that are hurtful or invalidating. All I can do is manage myself and the way that I interact with things. And so, you know, in social situations, it might be easier if someone says, uh, you know, God, that was so traumatizing. And they're talking about something that's really foolish and not traumatizing at all. I could say something like, uh, yeah, that was really overwhelming. I mean, trauma 
I'd probably say no, since I've been traumatized, that shit ain't, that shit's for real. You know, you can kind of make a joke about it that way. Like, that's no joke, dude. Um, but yeah, I could say that that is pretty, pretty stupid or pretty overwhelming or whatever equitable word you could throw in there. Right. So anyways, we can't control other people. Other people can suck. It's not up to us to educate everyone because I'm not going to lie. That could make us very unpopular. Um, not that we're in a popularity contest, but I'm just saying nobody likes to be told in the middle of a conversation or a flip, a flippant comment that, you know, they are wrong and that's hurtful and invalidating because people can get very defensive very quickly and that can cause more problems for us. So sometimes it's in our best interest to recognize how we're interacting with the world, what people we want to spend time with and not, and where can we redirect conversations like that without being rude and you know, some almost all the time, you guys, it sucks that we can't control other people. But I mean, also thank God that we can't because like what would people want you to do or me to do or, you know, you, do you see what I mean? And it is up to us what we allow to be upsetting. And I know that people, you know, we want to blame others and like, how, how dare they say something rude or how dare they do that hurtful thing? Well, A, I get to decide how much time I spend with that person. B, I get to decide if I even listen to them. If I think they're a total jerkwad loser, I don't have to pay attention. It doesn't matter. You're not important in my life. And C, I get to decide who I'm in relationships or not with, right? So it's like, how much time am I spending? Do I even listen to them at all, engage in any conversation? I can just walk away. Or, you know, do I even want to be in a relationship with a person that's that thoughtless or rude? Maybe I don't. And those are the things that I can control. And I'm sorry that people talk like this. And yes, I can do, there are certain ways, like the more we talk about and educate each other about mental health issues and be honest about it, the better. I mean, May is mental health month and it's coming up quick. And maybe at your place of work, if this is where most of this stuff happens, maybe at your place of work, you, you know, you could offer to give a presentation about mental health stuff or, or ping your boss or manager, whoever, and say like, Hey, could we have someone come in and talk about this? You know, that could be a way to go about it too. Um, Yeah. Those are just some thoughts. Hopefully that helps. I know it sucks and I'm sorry that people are being hurtful, but unfortunately people are hurtful and we have to learn how to not just roll with the punches, but how to manage it so that we don't feel terrible because we don't, you know, we don't deserve that. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And it is, hi, Katie, a friend of mine with whom I was really close decided to stop talking to me out of the blue. Like one day we were talking at uni and everything was fine. At least I thought it was. And then the next she decided to stop responding to my messages. Long story short, she hasn't reached out to me for over a month. Then yesterday I asked her if I'd done something wrong and she told me that yes, she didn't like my attitude, but she wasn't willing to further explain what she meant by that because she was going through mental health issues. Hmm. My point is, should we let someone with a mental illness go or should we persist and fight to keep the relationship going even though the mentally ill person is almost making us lose our peace? Hmm. Okay, this is a great question. And there were some great comments. First of all, I love I love our community. I know I say it all the time, but in case you forgot, I love you guys. I love the comments below this. I love the feedback. Even in the one above it, the one I just did, somebody offered pretty much the insight and the thoughts that I offered and you guys are just the best. So anyway, with regard to this, um, it's really up to you. Okay. I'm going to give you some options of things that you can do and ways that I could see this going. And then let's, you just have to figure out which one sounds the most like you. Now, first of all, 
we can't be expected to act in a different way or learn and be better if someone does not tell us what we've done wrong. Right? What we don't know, we can't fix. And so we can express that to this person. We could say, um, I'm sorry you didn't like my attitude, but I would love to have the example of the situation so that I can ensure that I don't do that again if it's that upsetting. You know, I can't fix what you don't tell me about. And if you won't be open to telling me what happened, then we, you know, then this relationship can't exist or then I can't right this wrong that you're saying I did. You know, that that's just obviously like at the bare bones, that's the truth. If Sean didn't tell me that me speaking to him a certain way was upsetting, then I don't know to not do it again, right? If you don't, if no one tells you something, you cannot be expected to change, period. Okay, so there's that. Then part of the question about like, should we let someone with a mental illness go? Because they're, they're essentially the person saying that they didn't like your attitude and that they're going through mental health issues, so they don't want to deal with it. Okay. We should not have to fight to keep a relationship alive. Yes, I recognize that some of us when we're feeling super depressed or anxious or overwhelmed or really deep in our eating disorders or whatever it is, we can push people away. However, it's on us, the person who's pushing people away to after we come out of it to reach back out or to say, sorry, I did that because we're the ones that are actively pushing people away. Yes, people in our lives can still try to show up or be persistent and like try to keep in touch. But I'll tell you, ba like based on what my patients and what even what you guys have told me, it doesn't work all the time. And a lot of times we just won't, will not pick up the phone, not respond, completely ignore and ghost them. So what are they supposed to do? And that could be wasted energy for you because you feel like it's making you lose your peace. So therefore... It's like by trying to to make this relationship work, maybe, you know, is actually bad for you. And I would I would honestly, my advice would be <clears throat> to to say what you need to say for you and let it go. You know, my my manager, Linnea, I love her. And when anything's like when people just aren't being helpful and they're making things really difficult or not replying to emails or something's just not working out. She always sends me that uh, little meme or I think it's actually a gif of frozen where it's like let it go let it go and that's what we kind of have to do and we giggle about it but it's the truth you can explain hey in order for me to be a better friend or to do better I have to know what happened and if you're not willing to tell me then this then I guess the relationship is over kind of thing and then let it go you know because we can't force that we can't force her to want to still be friends with us and it sucks but you know, we can give ourselves the time to grieve that um, and then move on. But let me keep reading this. So a friend of mine is really close to say, stop talking to me. First of all, you deserve better also to just stop talking to someone out of the blue and have no like reason or conversation or anything. Um, okay, so should we let someone with a mental illness go or should we persist and fight to keep it going? I say we can make a, a good effort. And then let it go. And if it ever costs you your peace or is essentially all of the effort putting into the relationship that essentially doesn't exist anymore, if that is the burden is too high and like the cost to you is too great, right? Because there's no benefit, then we have to let it go. I do want like there, the reason I'm saying this in such a strange way is because there are caveats to this where like, hey, you have like a really, really close friend and they're going through a tough time and you've asked them if you've done something wrong and they say no 
but they just don't reply and don't get together or don't show up or don't respond or whatever on a regular basis, we can still check in on them every week or so or every day. How are you doing? I know, you know, you haven't replied, but just want you know, I'm thinking about you. We can do those kinds of things and check in on people. But in this particular case, I think it's best to just let it go. I don't think it's helpful for you to keep pushing. Honestly, your friend is struggling so much that they aren't able to communicate their needs. They aren't able to communicate their upsets. And therefore, you can't actually right this wrong or change behavior in a way that suits them. There's honestly nothing that you can do because they're not even giving you that opportunity. And we can communicate that to them. But then again, we have to let it go. Okay. I hope that helps. Also, I just want to say I'm sorry that this is happening and that they did that. I, I think ghosting is honestly one of the most hurtful and childish and most passive aggressive ways to end a relationship. Unless the person obviously is like narcissistic or abusive, uh, then ghosting is probably the safest. But for most people, like, I mean, even uh, like boyfriends, when I decided when I first started dating Sean, I think I probably already shared the story. But when I started dating Sean, and I just really liked him from the beginning, right? Like I was totally excited about him, wanted to call him all the time, but couldn't because got to play cool, play cool, right? There were other guys that I'd gone on dates with. And one in particular had like been texting me a lot and calling me a lot. And Sean had like asked me if we were going to, you know, be exclusive. Like, were we not going to see anybody else? And, or maybe I brought it up. I honestly don't even know. Cause who cares? Um, but I think it was him <laughs> anyway, when he, when we talked about that and we decided, yes, we were going to be exclusive. Um, I called the few guys that I had been talking with or gone on dates with and said, you know, I just want you to know that this can't go anywhere romantically. I'm, I'm seeing someone and we're, we're going to be exclusive, you know? And it felt good, although awkward to make that call and to talk to them. But I'll tell you that all but one said, wow, so you're, you're, you're going to call me, not just ignore me. I guess. Thanks. Even though that sucks. It's not that hard, you guys. And it's just a little bit of mutual respect. I respected them. I didn't hate those guys. They were super nice. And like, I'd like them. And they were like kind of friends that then we got on like a date or two. And I just wanted them to know that like, Hey, I'm not, I can't be texting you because now I have a boyfriend. Right. Um, and I think a little bit of respect for other people, um, and a little dis, a little discomfort that we feel in those kinds of conversations, it goes a long way. It's, it's being the better person. It's being a good person it's best to let people know, not leave them guessing. And so anyway, I say all of that to just say that your friend could have let you know, but they aren't able or they're not willing and you deserve a better relationship than that. Okay. Question number four. I feel like I'm a little tough love Katie today. So if it seems a little harsh, I apologize. That is not my, uh, my goal or my intention. Okay. Question four says, hi, Katie. Can you please talk about complex PTSD and chronic trauma? My therapist recent told, recently told me that I have both of these and it's really scary. Is the quote unquote chronic trauma just going to keep happening over and over again? How do I make it stop? Thank you for everything you do. Of course. Okay, so I think there's a little confusion here. In the comments again below this were beautiful and most of you caught exactly what I caught and were able to explain this. So you don't have both okay, let me, let me not go about it that way. Sorry. Let's go about it this way. Chronic trauma, meaning 
uh, trauma that has happened repeatedly in your life. It doesn't mean that it's happening currently. If it is, removing yourself from that situation will allow you to feel uh, okay enough to start working on the complex PTSD. But really chronic trauma is, I, I believe that what your therapist is saying is that you've had multiple traumas in your life leading to a diagnosis of complex PTSD. Now, complex PTSD is not in the DSM, but the DSM is kind of a loser and doesn't like to add things and is very limited. And I don't really love it all the time. But PTSD in and of itself on its own, like having, you know, like a, a one trauma or even a few spread out throughout our life. Not everyone who's had more, more than one trauma has complex PTSD, but a lot of people do. And so that diagnostic criteria within the DSM is very limiting. And those of us who have chronic or repeated traumas, you know, complex fits more into that because it's we struggle more with like emotion regulation and almost can mimic a lot of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder as a result. So anyways, long story short, I believe that what your therapist is saying is that you had multiple traumas. I'm not even gonna use the word chronic because like, like you're experiencing chronic makes you think it's just going to keep happening over and over again. And yes, we can be re-traumatized. And yes, we can be involved in other traumatic situations. However, this that is not what's going on. It's the fact that you have been repeatedly traumatized in your life, leading to a diagnosis of complex PTSD. You are not going to be, you know, traumatized over and over and over and over again. As long as we're, you know, treating ourselves properly, working in therapy at a pace that feels okay, you know, using our resources, finding ways to cope like better and more healthy coping skills and all of that stuff. So how do you make it stop? You keep talking to your therapist about your traumatic experiences as much as possible. Something that can really, really help when we have complex PTSD or multiple traumas is to put together what's called a trauma timeline, where we try to lay out as much as we can remember, because as we all know, trauma memories, very difficult, very confusing but we can lay them out chronologically. And this can help us just kind of see what's happened more clearly and be able to fill in some blanks where we can be like, oh, wait, wait, no, this one couldn't have happened after that because we moved into that new house, right? It can help us kind of make sense of what otherwise can feel very, very confusing and messy. And so trauma timelines are extremely beneficial. I highly recommend them. And then the second stage is talking through those traumas along the timeline in as much detail as you as possible without dissociating becoming completely overwhelmed and not being able to stay present um and it's a it's a slow go it's hard work but it can and will get better and we do know through research that the best therapy for trauma is actually you know one part talk therapy and one part exposure therapy where we actually expose ourselves to things that are normally very triggering find ways to calm our system down and because otherwise when we've been repeatedly traumatized part of PTSD, whether it's complex or regular PTSD, part of those diagnoses um, is that our, we like avoid things that remind us of the trauma or are upsetting or triggering anyway. And so our world can get much like smaller and smaller and smaller until I've had patients who like struggle to, to leave the house or go to any public place because people around them is too overwhelming. And so we don't want that to happen. And so exposure therapy will broaden our world and our life and make it, you know, more livable because the people who traumatized us or the situations that did that have already taken too much from us and they don't deserve any more. We need to take that back, take back our life. Um, yeah. So that's, 
that's my advice. I also really love in a book that I read and referenced a ton in my I have a book about trauma called Traumatized. My book Traumatized is coming out this September. You can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. Um, but, and I'll do, I think it's in the next month, I'll do like the actual announcement. You guys can see the cover. I just don't have one with me to show it to you right now. But um, anyways, I read a book a ton and referenced it in my book. And that book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a beautifully written and researched, it, it's it's a little heady. Like it takes some time to digest all the, the the author was writing about because he shares so many different research studies and case studies with his patients and personal stories. Um, but it's, it's so helpful, so informational and can help you maybe better understand your response or what you're experiencing as a result of your complex PTSD, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, so that's, that's how I feel about that. You don't have both in the, the way that you were thinking, like that one's going to keep happening. It's like you have complex PTSD as a result of repeated traumas. I hope that clears that up. And please ask any follow-ups if you have them. Okay, let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, hi, Katie. How do I remember things that are helpful for me? Oh my God, I get my patients have asked this question over and over. I feel like my brain just turns off when I think about things that I can do for my mental health. With YouTube videos, I can recognize things that I relate to. But the moment the video tells me something I can do about it, I forget. I can't even remember it long enough to write it down, and I can't summarize it while the video is playing. I've also seen a therapist three times and written down things for the session every time, but I can't remember that the note even exists until I leave. Then I end up saying... I don't know to everything and can't remember what I wanted to say. I once remembered as I left and gave him the note, but no one brought it up the next time. That's kind of trash, but we'll get into that. How do I get anything from therapy or YouTube videos? Does this mean I'm not ready to fix it yet or something like that? Okay. Again, comments on this were amazing and beautiful. I have a couple of thoughts. So first of all, you can enlist a support person, meaning a therapist or Possibly and probably better is like a best friend or a close sibling or someone that you that you're okay sharing stuff with and have them help you write some things down. When you watch a YouTube video, you know, if you can talk it out with them, you can have someone assist you when it comes to tangibly writing things down so you can remember them. Okay. But second, and that as you as I continued to read this question. I believe this is actually what is happening. I think you're dissociating. I think there's some kind of overwhelm that you're experiencing and you're just like shutting down and that's why you can't remember anything. And of course, at the end of session, then you're like, oh my God, I remember that I have this letter. Here you go. Because the stress and pressure of the session has come down. And so there are a couple things we can do. Number one, we can try to recognize if this is happening, um, meaning... Is it only when we're overwhelmed? Like our, is it regular in, in other parts of our life is it easy for us to remember things? Check in on that first because, you know, there may be, there could be something else going on. Like for instance, if you were my patient, I would say, hey, I'm going to need you to see your regular doctor and get some blood work. And I'd also like you to see a psychiatrist so that we can kind of figure out what's going on, right? Is this something to do with something else going on in your body, right? Are we struggling to focus and concentrate because maybe we have really low, I don't know, like, really low potassium or iron or what's going on. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I lean on them to tell me if something is off. 
Okay. Then I'd, I'd personally ask you a lot about your sleep to see if that's why you're not remembering things or it's hard to focus or concentrate. And seeing a psychiatrist will look into other things like that as well. Do we think it's depression? Is that why? Do we think, you know, what's it associated with? Is it, um, is it ADHD? Is it PTSD and dissociation? Like I suspect, like what is it? And that will help us know more. But I believe like without you seeing those people, my spidey senses feel that this is something to do with you feeling overwhelmed and not being able to remember because it's normal to like, oh, in the moment when I feel overwhelmed, I can't remember what to do to make myself feel better. And that's because these safety plans or these lists of coping skills that we put together are supposed to be enacted before we reach the point of no return. So like if zero is I'm super calm and like asleep and 10 being like I'm in a full blown panic or dissociated, we want to be using our skills when we're like at a four or five, we start feeling it build up, you know, as we move into that five or move up closer to that six, we should be doing those things. Because as you all know, once we kind of start going, boom, sometimes it can just hit. So we want to already be doing something like early on. And otherwise, we can't remember, we can't think about where our list is, and we can't do those things. And that's what I try to get my patients to do is it, we do a lot of work in trying to track back the symptoms and the signs of the overwhelm. Like, what was the first, you know, okay, so we had a panic attack, let's say, yesterday. Okay, so tell me if you can remember about yesterday morning. Can you remember that? And a lot of times my patients say, no, I don't remember anything about yesterday. And so I'll say, okay, well, the day before that was Sunday. Okay, so what'd you do on your weekend? Do you remember your weekend? And wherever they can remember, we'll try to talk about that. And I'll say, okay, well, what happened? You know, and we'll try to identify a trigger or identify a set of triggers that that essentially set off this response so that we then have more information. And then I could say like, well, do you remember where it felt in your body? Or was it hard to sleep a few nights in a row? You know, we'll try to get some signs in place so that for the next time I can say, hey, notice if you're not sleeping well, or if your neck feels really tight, or notice if you have ruminating thoughts about that thing again, you know, we'll have some more information so that we can use our tools more early on and recognize it more quickly. And so that's kind of what we call like, not just psychoeducation, but I always call it like personal psychoeducation. Like you're learning about how your mental illness affects you and what the signs and symptoms are for you so that we can use that to better prepare. Um, yeah. So that's really, those are my thoughts. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not ready to fix or anything like that. I think it means you're overwhelmed. We need to find a way for you to get your head above water enough that you can recall information, write down the things that are upsetting and, a lot of that, then, you know, I have videos about grounding techniques and you probably heard me talk a lot about like counting colors and using Silly Putty and bergamot being a very, you know, uh, grounding scent. Or also I've used like peppermint with my patients in the past or citrus, like really strong, like orange or something like that. Um, you can use all of those things to bring you back so you can stay present. But I think the, when you're seeing your therapist and writing things down for sessions, I would encourage you to ask if they allow for you to email things ahead of time. Even tell them, I know, I don't expect you to read it. I just want to spend the first like five minutes having you read it. And then, you know, you can sit silently at the beginning while they read the email and then ask questions about it. Um, but again, we have to be able to stay grounded and present for that to, to help us in therapy. We have to be able to participate a little bit. So just noticing, again, that dissociation or that feeling of overwhelm, we've got to get better at noticing it more early on so that we can use our tools and hopefully fight back and overcome it or manage it at the very least. 
Um, yeah, I hope that helps. I think that's how you get stuff from therapy and YouTube videos is finding a way for you to stay present and finding a way to kind of calm your system down. Full body shakes can help too. I've been talking about those a lot lately just because they kind of get that nervous energy out of our system so that we can stay present and be okay. But keep me posted. Hopefully that helps. That's, and I, that's, again, that's just me making a lot of assumptions that I think it is dissociation. So if it's not, you let us know. Let's move on to question number six. And this one had a lot of comments on it, but let's just read the beginning part first. It says, is it possible to recognize the beginnings of an eating disorder in yourself? <clears throat> Excuse me. I've noticed myself eating as little as possible and taking long walks, even at odd hours. Ooh, 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 okay. My, my red flags. Pew, 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 pew. To burn off most, if not all, of what I ate. Ooh, also eating disorder behavior. I also tried to purge, but haven't been able to actually do it. Doesn't matter. Still eating disorder behavior, doing it or not. Part of me thinks it isn't a big deal because I'm overweight anyways, and it's only been going on for about a month. Doesn't matter. Shape, size, doesn't matter. My therapist doesn't seem very concerned about it. Probably not an eating disorder specialist. Therapists can be pretty ignorant about this. So I'm wondering if I'm just being dramatic, even though it feels off to me. It feels so impossible to think that anything else and making any decisions related to food gives me so much anxiety now. Okay. In short, yes, you have an eating disorder. Yes, your spidey senses are correct that you are recognizing the beginnings. Actually, I would believe that you're in a full-fledged eating disorder right now because, and I don't know if I've said this enough or uh, clearly I haven't said this often enough, eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. Eating disorder behavior actually has nothing to do with our shape or size. A lot of people always associate eating disorders with people who are underweight and people who are anorexic. That's just one form of many forms of eating disorders, and all of them are exactly the same. Now, I know those of you out there with a raging eating disorder just got really angry because you're like, My, I, it's unique to me, and it's the only thing that I am good at, and nobody else understands it. A lot of fucking people understand it, and you're not unique. And I'm sorry, but your eating disorder is lying to you because eating disorders are just full of shit. And they make me very upset and angry because they take lovely, wonderful human beings and try to tell them that they're trash and I just don't like it and I won't stand for it, okay? So I want you to know that it doesn't matter if you're overweight or that this has only been going on for a month. It's plenty of time and eating disorders are all shapes and sizes and your therapist just probably is not very uh, eating disorder informed. And that's common. I used to, the reason my channel actually exists back in the day, like uh, 10 years ago now, or over 10 years ago, I guess. I created the channel because there were not enough people in Los Angeles where I live who fully understand and are able to properly treat eating disorders. And that's where the channel was born out of. I used to complain to Sean all the time that we had no one to refer out to when I worked at this eating disorder treatment center. And it was very upsetting to me that people, because we refer people out and they'd be They'd come back because things weren't helpful or someone was, you know, didn't know what they were doing or whatever. And anyway, so that's why my channel exists. So unfortunately, there are a lot of therapists out there who just don't get it. And that's okay. Not all that we can't specialize in everything. Therapists can't know about everything. The assumption that we we can, I think, is what or even the assumption that therapists actually accept and and take it as like a false belief about themselves that they should. I think we should have. Honestly, in a perfect future. I wish that therapists, just like doctors, like specialize in a certain component of our mental health and focused in on that because it's the, it's the, what is it? What a, there's a term they use like um, master of none. What is it? It's like 
you're kind of good at everything. So you're a master of none. Oh, jack of all trades, master of none. That's the phrasing. And the therapists end up being that because we're kind of forced to, to talk about and try to help our patients with all sorts of things that maybe we're not that educated on. And I think your therapist maybe she's not that educated on eating disorders. Um, Okay, now there was a comment below this. It said, I never thought about my past eating habits, but after being diagnosed more than a year ago with an eating disorder, I realized it has happened before and I always searched for a medical reason. So my question is, can you have an eating disorder and do things unconsciously? I lost a lot of weight and was placed on meds, which led to weight gain and had a couple of months of doing well, but it has creeped back. I think I'll purge regularly and at the moment, I can't say what I'm do- that I'm doing it or why I'm doing it. It's just that I am. Also, gaining weight is not helping, and I feel bad doing it, but is it weird to say that I don't want to stop? Okay, it's not weird to say that you don't want to stop. Eating disorders are our way to cope with other upsets that we just aren't quite ready to face. And when it comes to um, doing things unconsciously, whether we want to recognize it or not, it's actually a conscious decision that we're making. It just feels almost like a knee-jerk reaction, like it's an innate thing, like, oh, I just have to do this. It can feel like we have to, like we don't have a choice. And that removal of choice can make us feel like it's just happening without us participating. But I urge you to see that you are participating and that this is something that you're doing to cope with something else going on. Because eating disorders don't just exist because we gained weight. It's actually something that we've done as a way to numb out or focus on food instead of something else, something else that's upsetting, whether that's like, you know, disruptive childhood abuse or PTSD or a certain trauma, or maybe just some um, really intensive uh, medical traumas we've sustained or issues we have in inner child work or how we feel in our body, uh, gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia, there's been a ton of different things that can lead to us wanting to numb out by using food, whether that's overeating, undereating, uh, binging, purging, exercising, whatever. Um, so yes, and, and you don't want to stop because it's the only thing you have that's working for you right now. It's the only way that you know how to cope. And so talking about it in therapy and finding some other coping skills. Yes, I know the other coping skills do not work as well as the good ones and the healthy ones, or sorry, the healthy ones don't work as well as the eating disorder. I know that. And I recognize that, but keep trying because we know where the eating disorder takes us, right? It takes us to a place where we can't concentrate. All we think about is food. It makes us feel like shit about who we are and what we look like. And yeah, it just, it can just take away all the joy from our life. So it's kind of a bummer. Okay, now let's move into the second question or the second comment on this question. And that says, I get this too. I'm not sure if I'm making it up though. I find myself not eating at all at school simply because people won't notice that's an eating disorder. I can't tell you how many of my patients over the years started out doing this because my parents won't notice because I'm at school. So they don't eat anything all day long. And if they can try to put off eating breakfast before they go to school, even better. You know, it's just these are strange rules around food that other people who don't have eating disorders do not have and do not think about. Okay, says so my um, people won't notice like my parents and it's easy way not to eat. However, when I'm home, I'm fine and I can eat however much I like. I have a question for you. If you were forced to eat at school, would you be able to eat whatever you like at home? be honest, because my, my thought is that your eating disorder just screamed, hell no. Okay. Um, and then says, is it weird or is it normal? It's normal for eating disorder behavior. I also find myself thinking about food way too often. 
ding, ding. That's because it's an eating disorder and what I can do to avoid it. Yet I really don't care about calories or weight. Thanks so much. That's because eating disorders don't have anything to do with calories or weight. Some of us focus on the numbers because it gives us a thing to, again, focus on instead of actually acknowledging the pain and the hurt that we're experiencing. Others of us just focus on the control of the food. and It actually has nothing to do with weight or calories. It's more about the fact that I got away with it or I did this. And we focus all of our brain space and energy on that so that, again, we don't have any room to think about the thing that we're trying to avoid. Eating disorders are a you know, great coping skill and a great avoidance tactic. Now, someone said, um, but yes, just to wrap that last comment up, yes, that's an eating disorder. Please talk to someone about it. Um, because if we don't, I know that it only gets worse. Okay, now the next comment says, as a further add-on, Katie, is it healthy or unhealthy to do my own eating disorder scale or ED belief questionnaire or a similar diagnostic tool? Is it better to do it with a therapist? Um, I suppose I'm generally curious about a few behaviors and beliefs that I have related to food and image, but I don't want to fall into the trap of self-diagnosing and ruminating, if that makes sense. But at the same time, I don't feel like booking into therapy without knowing if I fit the label. Oh, interesting. Um, my thought about this is it's not really unhealthy for you to do the questionnaire yourself. However, the thing about questionnaires and diagnostic tools is that as a lay person, meaning not a, a mental health professional or a clinician of some sort, you're not going to actually know how to interpret the data. Yes, you can be like, oh, I fall within this range. That means I have an eating disorder. Okay, we can do that. Sure. But when it comes to the way that therapists are trained to use diagnostic tools is that each answer you've given us actually means a whole bunch of other things. And so when we're taught how to administer and read results from different tools, whether we've learned in school or whether we've learned through experience, you know, like when I worked at the Enos or Treatment Center or people who worked in hospitals, we used to do a ton of like uh, the MMPIs and stuff, mini mentals and all sorts of different uh, Diag not diagnostic tools, but questionnaires and things like that. Um, you know, we're taught how to interpret the data. And because you weren't taught that, you're only getting like part of the answer. So I would caution you against thinking that those are going to tell you whether or not you have an eating disorder, because first of all, questionnaires, I have my own issues with like, you know, testing and assessment and how sometimes we can get false negatives and false positives, depending on how honest the person is when they answer. Um, Obviously, I would assume you're doing it for your own and you would want to be honest, but I'm just, you know, telling you how I feel about it. You don't have to fit any label to actually need to get, you know, mental health support or help. The sooner we reach out to a mental health professional, actually, the better. And anyone can benefit from therapy. I'll go back to therapy just when I feel kind of overwhelmed and like tearful. And doesn't mean I have to fit any criteria for anxiety or depression. The sooner I get in, actually, the less likely I would be to fit that criteria, which in my mind is a very good thing. Um... So yeah, those are my thoughts. I don't really think it's necessarily unhealthy. I just have some, you know, I caution you in those ways about it because I don't know, scales aren't always that, that great. The, and honestly, the eating disorder belief questionnaire I've never, I've never used in my own practice or anywhere I've worked. And the eating disorder scale, I truly have not used in probably six years. So I don't know if people are even using those or if there's a better diagnostic tool, um, but you can try it. You can totally do it. There's no harm, no foul. Um, as long as you still get support and get help. Cool? Cool. Okay. And also just to wrap that up, you said something about like ruminating or self-diagnosing. If you think that this has the potential to do that to you and kind of derail you, 
then I think you have your answer that it's not actually worth it for you to do it. Um, yeah, because we don't want that to happen, especially if we don't have support on on board already, right? We don't want to derail us poor even in therapy. That's terrible. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And that is, hi, Katie, how do you deal with going to therapy and subsequently coming to the realization that things are actually a lot worse than you made them out to be? I started therapy about three months ago. And I thought that I would be working through anxiety and mild depression. But after being curious about my life circumstances up until this point, I realized that many of them were traumas and that I may have complex PTSD. Also, after only a couple sessions, my therapist realized that I'm autistic. Did you guys hear Sean sneeze? I hope you did. This is quite shocking because I am 22, but empowering because I understand better now what makes me different and I'm working to accept it. Therapy has also given me the space to explore to being gender non-conforming in addition to being queer, which instigates another onslaught of thoughts. Most of my days um, ruminating and researching about trauma and neurodiversity, which my therapist has warned against doing continuously, yes, because I am so desperate to make sense of my past and finally giving myself the space to think about it rather than repress it. So how can I stop ruminating about my life as a result of being in therapy and having the space to do so, which is awesome but overwhelming, totally get it, such that I can reintegrate into normal life while knowing these things about myself. I love this question. And I think a lot of us can feel that way when we finally get diagnosed with something. Because for for many of my patients, upon receiving a diagnosis, just like this person said, once they realize that they're autistic, there's like two parts to it. There's one part that's usually like, shocked and kind of overwhelmed and wants to learn everything about it. And I've even had patients who then question it. They're like, I don't think I am. That's not quite right. And I'm like, hey, here's some here's some helpful research. Here are some videos. Here's some things to check out. You let me know. You know, you it's your diagnosis. So you have every right to question it and push back. But then along with that, like questioning, um, shock, oh my God, then there's the validation. I can't tell you how many of my patients over the years have said, you know, it just feels good to know that I'm not like crazy. Or I'm not just weird. Or it wasn't that I just didn't fit in. I'm actually just different than people. Like my brain works differently. Like even my ADHD patients over the years have said, oh my God, I always just thought I was lazy or stupid. Right? And so we can have these false narratives we've created about ourselves to explain a diagnosis that we just haven't been given. And so it can be really healing and really helpful to get properly diagnosed and to finally find out, hey, like to my ADHD patients, I'm not lazy and stupid. I have ADHD. My brain just works differently. It's always seeking out dopamine and it's hard for me to to find joy in the benign or mundane things in life, right? So it can be really helpful. And in the case of this person, realizing that you're autistic has probably given you this whole other view where you're like, oh my God, all this like masking that I've been doing is why I found certain situations or people super exhausting or why I always felt like disconnected, like I'd miss things. And like, I was kind of different. And you know, people reminded me or said things that made me feel like I was weird or different, right? It can be so empowering and validating to know that that's why and help you then come to learn about and accept yourself as you are instead of again, these like false hurtful narratives about you. So that's, that's really great. Okay. But that's not your question. (laughs) I just, I just had to talk about that a little bit. So your question is, how can I stop ruminating about my life? So what I would actually encourage you to do is be a little bit more structured about this. And I can understand the obsession, especially I just did a video about um, autism 
and autism spectrum disorders and how people prefer to be called autistic and all of the missteps and mishaps and misunderstandings that there are out there about those with ASD. Okay. And I'm just calling it, you know, in that blanket, which I know people want to say like for autistics and I'm happy to use that phrasing too, but I just want people to know that's what I'm referencing is ASD. So anyways, long story short, there's a reason that you've become so, you know, fixated on it and it can be hard for it to tear it apart and like tear yourself away from it so that you, cause it feels like we finally have answers. Right. And a lot of autistic people get very fixated on certain things and want to find out everything about it. And that interest, it like works with our brain, right? We're super engaged and interested and, and it can be really difficult for us to think about anything else. And so if you're able, and I don't know, everyone who has autism is different, but I, from what I've read, and again, I do not specialize in ASD. So take this with a grain of salt and be happy to, you know, I'm open to pushback or comments and constructive criticism about this. But from what I've read, and from what I understand from other members of our community, is that we have to kind of set these boundaries and transitions around when we're going to allow ourselves to go down rabbit holes and get caught in rumination. Okay. So what I mean by that is that it's perfectly fine for you to, you know, look into explore being gender nonconforming and being queer and being autistic and what that means and, you know, researching about trauma and neurodiversity within reason. So set a timer and allow yourself, mm, I'd max out at an hour, 40 minutes to an hour, five days a week. And we set this structure up and we have timers that go off. And I'd, I'd encourage you just because people, you know, my, the people that I've known that are autistic and autistic people in our community have told me that the transitions are usually what's kind of rough and we can need a little bit of time. So set a timer that's going to go off five minutes early or how, you know, have that first alarm go five minutes and then another one go off five minutes later. And at that point, you know that you have to move out of that and into something else. That's in my, and again, I'd be open in the comments if anybody wants to leave other tools and tactics and ways that they help themselves transition that would be wonderful and super beneficial. But that that's my thought about it. Those are my thoughts is like, if we have structure to when we're going to allow ourselves to do the psychoeducation, because I'm going to be honest, that it can be helpful to know some things about it. But knowing about something isn't healing, or working through it. That's just knowledge. A lot of times we can get caught in logic brain where we like want to logically make sense of something that I'm going to be honest with you here, like trauma doesn't always make logical sense. Most of the time it doesn't at all. And it can be really, uh, it can de be detrimental to our recovery or undermine our recovery to focus on that so much. And that's probably why your therapist is like, let's not do this too much because we can spend so much time in it that then when it doesn't work out the way that we've researched, right? Because everyone's experience is different. Or if our, if our experience being autistic isn't reflected in what we read online, it can be very frustrating or invalidating again or whatever, right? There's so many ways that we can almost without meaning to harm ourselves in our recovery by doing these deep, intensive, unending dives into research and understanding and education and like Reddit threads and blogs. And I mean, the, the internet is wonderful because we have so much access, but it's also terrible because there's so many like quote unquote resources that aren't actually good resources. They're not founded. In fact, they're, you know, people sharing experience, which isn't wrong. But there's also like fake experts touting beliefs or things that they think and we just want to be very careful and protect this like 
newly found information about ourselves, right? And we want to, but we don't want to snuff it. We want to give ourselves time to think about it and engage with it. And one thing I would actually encourage you to do is to engage online with other people who are, who feel similar to you, meaning whether it's the autistic community or gender non-conforming or, or being queer, like if you want to be, you know, part of the LGBTQ stuff online, picking a group or something that feels like home to you. And that can be your outlet to communicate with others and experience it versus getting so into just like reading, research, learning about it and, you know, ruminating. I want you to feel free to just live it and see what that's like. Like how fucking freeing and amazing is that, right? And so those are my thoughts. There's a lot I know to unpack, but I hope that that at least is a little bit helpful. And I think having structure around it will really help. Now we did have one question in the comments below and it said, it asked, um, it asked the person, I'll give you guys the answer, but they said, did you start quote unquote acting more autistic after you found out? I started stemming way more and am more sensitive to sound and touch. Katie, is that common? And I love this. Okay, if you don't know what stemming is, stemming is essentially repetitive behaviors that autistic people do to soothe. It could be things with our hands. Um, it could be uh, like rocking side to side, front to back. It could be any kind of uh, anything like that. A lot of times, that's why a lot of people find ABA therapy to be so traumatic is because that behavior that we find soothing, right? And I should be able to do this if I find this behavior soothing. Um, ABA therapy does not allow for that. And it like, they'll take away the thing that's soothing, make you sit on your hands, you have to stop and you get kind of like punished for doing that and then rewarded for not. And so it's essentially telling, you know, autistic children that the way they act isn't okay when it is okay. It's just the way we self soothe. And so that's what stemming is. And um, this is this is common. Okay, so like I said, I just put a video out about uh, missteps and misunderstandings and for the autistic community. And and I'm still learning, right? You can hear, I'm trying to get better with the language of it. And I hope, I hope that's appreciated. I'm doing my best. Um, but it is very common because sometimes, especially, and not to say, you know, males versus females, but I know that females who, uh, autistic females tend to be much better or more quick to learn what we would call masking, where we mimic other people's social cues, like eye contact and body language and hand gestures and and emotional responses on our face, right? That's kind of why they call it masking. We can be really good at it. But once we recognize, because a lot of times we're doing it without realizing, because we want to fit in, we want people to like us, we want to have, uh, you know, socialization, we're, we're humans, right? We all need that we need to feel heard, understood and part of something. And so once we've gotten diagnosed, and we realize that we are autistic, then we're like, Oh, I don't have to do that anymore. And we can kind of let that, that masking or that, that kind of defense mechanism or wall or whatever you want to call it, we can let that guard down and we can feel more free. Again, that validation to be ourselves, we can feel more free to do that. And I think that that would probably, you know, explain why quote unquote acting more autistic is common and happens after we've been diagnosed. But I thought that was a great question. And I hope that was helpful. Again, I'm always open to like constructive criticism about this. I'm doing my best to learn. And thank you to all the members of our community who have offered up, uh, you know, their insights, their thoughts, their feedback. It's been really helpful and I'm doing my best. Okay. And then we're learning together, right? I think that's a good thing. Okay. Moving on to question number eight. It is. 
Hi, Katie. Do you have any advice for people who have quote unquote fallen off the wagon in terms of mental health management and self-care? Talk about 2020. So many people, even myself included, fell off the wagon for a while. I struggled with depression and about a year ago, I finally found out or I finally found a way of coping and feeling normal through a combination of meditation and CBT or CFT. So uh, CBT, if you guys don't know, is cognitive behavioral functioning. Um, and CFT is compassion focused therapy. Now, I personally do not practice compassion focused therapy, but it's essentially it's supposed to like promote emotional healing. And this is like the bare bones of what I know. And they want you to, you know, kind of show a little bit more compassion toward yourself and other people in your life. So uh, through a combination of oh, medication, I think I said meditation, you guys, I'm sorry, medication and CBT slash CFT. However, my therapy sessions have ended as they were free. And due to an intense semester at university during the pandemic, my sense of routine has been totally thrown off. Although I'm still taking my medication, I'm finding myself struggling to get going again with the things that help. When I ask others for advice, such as the well-being advisor or counselor at the university, I always get told what, I'm, what I already know. But no advice on how to put those things into action again. I hope that makes sense. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. I hope you're well and having a good week. I am. Thanks for asking. Um, okay. My advice is actually to start very small. So one of the things that we can do is we can make a list of the things that have worked. But let's start back with basic because we oftentimes when something's been working and we've been kind of operating at this high level, able to do maybe all the things, right? Like I'm one of those people too. I'll be honest here. Like back pre-COVID, I used to be able to like, I feel like do so much more than I can right now. I just feel like the stress and anxiety of this year has just been overwhelming. And I'm gonna be honest, I'm just not there yet. I can't do what I used to do, but there are lots of things I can do. Okay. So anyways, with that, you used to be operating 100% doing all the things, everything that we were told we're doing. So we're instead of planning on doing all that, let's break that down into all the things that, that includes. Okay, let's make a line on the page. Let's write down all the basic things, meaning, are we drinking enough water? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we showering regularly? It doesn't have to be every day, but like every two, three days, are we showering? Shower can change your life. I'm just telling you. Are we eating? I might have, I said sleep, water, shower, eating. Yeah, I'm like going through my, like kind of my own, my own little uh, checkoff list. Are we eating regularly well-balanced meals? Meaning we shouldn't only be eating cucumbers or salads. And we sh also shouldn't only be eating like Doritos and pizzas. There has to be a balance. Are we eating sandwiches, salads, soups, pizzas, you know, fries and burgers are we eating a variety of foods throughout the day because there are no bad and there are no good foods there's just food and i want you to be feeding yourselves regularly so that you feel like you have enough energy to go about your day are we taking our medication sounds like you still are but are we taking our medication as prescribed when we're supposed to be taking it you know just going to those basic things can help us feel more motivated and actually better about ourselves so that then we can tackle one just one of the other things that used to help. So maybe let's say as part of our CBT work, we did some thought tracking. I don't know. I'm pretty sure you're probably past that, but it's an example. One worksheet, one thing. Okay, so can we thought track twice this week? Is that something that we can do, right? Let's start a little bit smaller because the thing about motivation is that 
if we set the bar really high, we have this huge list of things to do. We slip up on one and don't finish it. And we want to go black and white thinking. It's just a, it's a basic cognitive distortion slash defense mechanism. We're like all or nothing. So we're like, ah, fuck it. I already messed up. I'm done with this. And we like, just don't do any other work or help ourselves at all anymore. Right. We're in or we're out. But if we have barely anything on our list. So today I want you to drink water. I want you to shower and that's it. Okay. So we have those two things Then we check. And we as we check the boxes of those lists, we feel good. We feel accomplished. I did all the things I was supposed to do today. Katie said today, all I had to do was to eat breakfast and drink enough water. And I did it. Bing, bing, bing. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. And we start to feel better about ourselves and we feel more empowered to do maybe a little bit more the next day or the next week or whatever. Um, and so starting small, starting with our basic self-care, kind of meeting ourselves where we're at. I would just encourage you to meet yourself where you're at and add one extra thing and see how that helps. And then the second component of this and the second part of my answer is your medication may not be enough right now. Again, going back to this last year being a total shit show, I, I've heard from our audience alone, five people off the top of my head who've had to either go on medication or increase their medication because things are terrible. You're not expected to go at the same pace when things are completely different and maybe they're back to normal now, but they were in complete disarray for a long period of time. And it's okay to need a higher dose of medication for a little bit longer. Again, I'm not a doctor, but reach out to your psychiatrist talk to them about it, let them know that your motivation and self care is like, and you're having a really tough time getting going again. Sometimes we need to just, you know, move up the dosage a little bit for a period of time to get us through it so that we can kind of get our mojo back and get back into it. I hope that helps. You've got this. You've done it before. You can do it again. Um, yeah. Keep us posted. Okay. Moving on to question number nine it says, how do I deal with, with existential thoughts slash depression brought on by my isolation and trauma in my childhood. I feel impossibly alone in this and no one I share my thoughts with actually understands. I have got an answer for you. Groups. Okay. First of all, one of the best and most healing things for my trauma patients and for our my trauma viewers, you guys have told me is online or in-person therapy groups. Now, COVID sucks and shit's all fucked up, but we have groups online. Yay! Hope for Recovery. Um, it's hope in the number four. Recovery, I think it's .org. If you just go to their calendar, you can see all of their trauma groups. Beautiful. It's free. It's amazing. It's a way for you to hear from others who are going through something similar. And guess what? They actually understand. It's beautiful. Super healing. Another thing is I have my Facebook group. Now, my Facebook group is not a substitute for therapy. There's no therapist in there, but there are other members of our community who I know have been through trauma and are sharing things about it, sharing memes, talking to each other, meeting new people, getting to know others in the community. It's if you just go to my Facebook page, so just go to, I think it's facebook.com forward slash Katie Morton one, I think. And then go to the, the group is just called Katie, all caps, K-A-T-I, you have to answer a couple questions to get in that just keeps bots out. Um, and there are some rules to the group just to keep it safe, healthy, happy. If you're suicidal, that's not the place to get that help. Again, because it's just like peer support. But that's another place to go. It's another place to talk to people. And I'd encourage you to use these resources to get that support. 
and to get some, it's, it's so important to have people around us who get it right. It's so validating to know that we're not alone with our pain or upset or hurt or whatever it is, our trauma to have people who've been through something similar. There's just nothing like it. And I even know through being in group therapy myself off and on when I was, I was in college, we had some group therapy offered through the school. And even I took a course called interpersonal effectiveness, I think. And it was like group therapy. That's all it was, is that you realize there's something just so healing about hearing from other people who maybe you think you have nothing in common with, but you hear their story and you're like, oh my God, me too. And so A, makes you feel like you're not weird or crazy. And B, you can learn from them because they've been through it too. And maybe they have more tools or resources or insights than you do. And usually in groups, there's no crosstalk. So it's, they don't, no one's going to prescribe anything to you or say like, Hey, this is how it works for me. You just get to listen to their story, take what you want, leave the rest. It's beautiful. Cannot recommend it enough. I hope that helps. You got this. Reach out. It does help. Group therapy is just so healing. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, could you talk more about nightmares connected to trauma? I am diagnosed with CPTSD and I have a lot of nightmares. When I was in high school, I had them so often that I was scared of sleeping. It would sometimes sleep on a mattress in my parents' room, but they're not obvious flashback nightmares. Still, my therapist thinks they're connected. What do PTSD nightmares look like? Are they always obvious flashbacks? No, they're not. Is there a difference between the nightmares and people with PTSD and CPTSD? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know if that if this matters, but I didn't realize that the trauma experiences, emotional and sexual, were actually abuse until years ago. I just thought that it was normal. That's very normal. We don't know what's weird or not until we talk to other people about it, right, and hear from other people about it. So, okay, let's talk about nightmares and trauma. Now, nightmares are actually part of the diagnostic criteria when it comes to PTSD, I cannot imagine there being a difference between nightmares with the, from those of us who have complex PTSD to those of us who have PTSD. I think it's actually more just differing person to person depending on the nature, um, not just the nature, but like the, the subject matter of the nightmares are going to be different person to person, right? The frequency, there can be a lot of that. Now, I would hypothesize that those of us with complex PTSD, meaning we've had repeated traumas in our life, are more likely to have more repeated nightmares. I'm just hypothesizing again, you know, I'm not like full of all research about all topics, but based on what I know and the research I did for my book, that would be what I would believe to be true. Now, nightmares can be flashbacks. I want people to know that, that nightmares can be flashbacks. We can go right back into that traumatic situation and feel like we're reliving it and we wake up in a sweat, you know, they can be overwhelming. However, most of the time, not all the time, again, a lot of them are like that. Also, a lot of them are what I would call trauma adjacent, meaning there are some similarities like, uh, for instance, one of my patients, uh, her father was horribly abusive and she would have these nightmares that other men in her life would start to engage in certain behaviors that was just reminded her of her dad. And this is in her dreams, in her sleep. And what would end up happening, we believed based on what she was telling me, is that she would go into full panic attacks as a result. And then she would wake up mid panic attack, heart racing, she could be sweating, she'd feel like she was like suffocating. It was very upsetting and very traumatizing. And sometimes she would wake up like having night terrors, where her body was still in like sleep, where it's like, uh, you're kind of like paralyzed, you guys know what I'm talking about. 
when you have like that deep sleep and your body can't move and then she couldn't move and it would be super, super upsetting. So we talked to a psychiatrist and what ended up working for her was actually some medication, not um, actually, it wasn't actually sleep medication. She took that for like, I want to say three or four days. So the psychiatrist recommended and then she went on some like antidepressants and an atypical and that ended up helping it for her. But I just want you guys to know that nightmares aren't always directly connected to the trauma. They can be like trauma adjacent. What uh, trauma nightmares usually do is they elicit some type of similar nervous system response. So that can be anything from feeling helpless, like, like you can't get out, you know, that freeze state. It could be a certain person in our life that we always have thought of as trusting all of a sudden in our nightmares, we, we feel like they aren't um, in the same way that like maybe our abuser was in our life. So it can be, does that make sense? Kind of running parallel. Now, everyone's nightmares are going to be different. But I will tell you that nightmares and PTSD are like, they hang together all the time in the same way we would talk about flashbacks or hypervigilance or any of the other symptoms of PTSD. And I believe the same goes for complex PTSD. As I've said before earlier in this podcast, those of us with complex PTSD tend to have more difficulty managing our emotion, like a regulation of our emotions, and it can affect our relationships on a deeper level. Now, that's not to say that those with PTSD don't have that too, but we just find that to be more common. Like a lot of the symptoms of complex PTSD mimic those of borderline personality disorder. So there are a little, there are a few differences in that way. Um, I think I answered the question. Yeah, just talking more about it. So those are kind of, that's what I know about it. I would also love to hear from our community. If any of you experience these, could you please let us know in the comments if, you know, if there's something that I missed or even if what I said, you're like, yes, that was me. Let us know. It's helpful for me to learn about it as well as I'm sure for the person who asked this question or anyone else wondering to kind of understand, again, other people's experiences. Because like I said, to the answer to question number nine, having other people who know what that's like and actually understand and get it super healing, super helpful the more we're open to sharing, you know, the better we all can feel. And so, yeah, I hope that that's helpful. Thank you so much for sending in all of your questions as, as they are, they're wonderful each and every week. So as they were last week and as they'll be next week, I have no doubt your questions are wonderful. Um, I'm sure they're helping more than just the people who asked them. I hope that my answers were beneficial and you could at least take a seed from this podcast and plant it in your life and it can make things a little bit better and brighter. Um, I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Don't forget to do something nice for yourself. Like I'm going to watch an NCIS right after this and zone out a little bit. Um, but yeah, take care and I will see you next week. Oh, and don't forget to share the podcast. Don't forget to leave good reviews. I read them and I appreciate each and every one of you. Take care. Bye.